0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, you're welcome to Business Impact, and today's podcast, well, it's all about appearances and feeling good about yourself more generally. As we record this, non essential retail has started to reopen, and there's a little bit of feeling out there in the atmosphere, in the ether, that it's a time to treat and pamper ourselves just a little bit. I'm actually on the brink of getting a haircut because I'm actually beginning to start to look like a member of the Bay City Rollers or probably more one of their roadies, to be honest, but it's time for me to be sheared. And my modest uh, makeover plan, I think, chimes a little bit with the broader topic of today's podcast. Now, history tells us that periods of economic turbulence are actually great times to launch and develop businesses. Just ask Microsoft, General Motors, IBM, any of these big companies were launched at a time of economic downturn. Counterintuitively, maybe, but severe downturns do mean that traditional business models get disrupted and conventional business wisdoms get exposed for what they are, which is, well, conventional. But what's it like to be a young entrepreneur as the winds of Brexit, COVID blow right over you? What's it like to be selling a product in the social media age where the shop window seemingly has been replaced by the, the Twitter hashtag, I suppose, are the Insta posts? Now, my guest today is a young entrepreneur and she exists in the exact context I've just described via the beauty industry. And that guest is Amy Connolly. She's the CEO and founder of Sculpted by Amy, a business that was launched in 2016. Initially, it had two products. It now has over 41 at this stage and is stocking its product in over 400 stores in Ireland, including Boots, no less. And Amy has a store in Sandyford Road, Dundrum. Amy is a UCD BCom graduate, That should be pointed out, and just a few days ago she found out that she is a finalist in the Entrepreneur of the Year competition run by Ernest and Young, EY, and she's in the emerging category. And as non-essential retail opens up again, it's a great time to talk to her. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Amy.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Now I need to put a huge health warning in before we begin our conversation. I'm far from well-versed in the beauty industry, <laughs> probably won't come as a huge surprise to our listeners. Um, maybe some of them are likewise, maybe not, who knows, because you do have a very diverse audience. But just bear with me, you're going to have to nurse me through some of the more technical aspects of the sector and so on. But let's kick off, uh, As a, thanks for coming on. You are a BCom UCD graduate, so you, you've had a very interesting backstory um, from your educational years into where you are now. But just tell me a little bit about how you set up this incredibly um, successful company.
1: As you mentioned, I am a BCom graduate, so I always wanted to, you know, finish my studies and see that side of my academia through. But I suppose I have kind of an interesting starting story in that I began in makeup working part time when I was actually in fourth year in school. So before I did my leaving cert, et cetera, and it really came about very randomly after I had done two weeks work experience like most of us have to and was offered a job on the Urban Decay, which is a cosmetics brand counter in House of Fraser that has since gone, but was there. I worked there kind of every weekend. I then obviously finished my leaving search, went on to college and continued working part-time in MAC for the first year, and then started working for myself, covering various bits like freelancing and makeup teaching photo shoot writing beauty all kind of facets with to it which is great but then it meant that when I graduated at 22 I actually had six years in the industry built up so I was in a strong place I suppose to to really know what product I wanted to bring to market and what sort of ethos I wanted the brand to have and that that's kind of why I essentially didn't go for any graduate scheme and started working for myself fully um Full time straight after college.
0: And Amy, did you always have the idea of setting up your own business or did it sort of happen accidentally or or was it something you had sort of mapped out?
1: I think a bit of both. I think if you'd asked me when I was younger in school in my first few years, I would have said I wanted to be a teacher. But then, kind of as soon as transition year hit and I started working, I was very into business and. You know, they generally say that you probably think slightly differently when you're in business or at least sitting a business degree like I was in the later years. And I kind of feel like as I'm getting older, there's more truth to that. So I didn't have it all mapped out. But at the same time, I knew after I had finished in Mac in that first year in college that I was never going to work for anyone else. It was just a matter of what exactly I was going to do. And so it was a natural progression for me to mix, I suppose, my love of makeup with my business degree and further explore that area, which is essentially what led me to the brand.
0: And it's an amazingly competitive industry. There's a lot of big names in there. You know, everyone from Anita Roddick back in the 70s and 80s, you know, there's all sorts of entrepreneurs. It seems to be an industry that brings out the best in entrepreneurs. Is it hard to get started? I mean, how much money and capital do you need to, to get going in the first place?
1: So for me, the main capital that was necessary was just to fund my first product order. And naturally, you know, the product quantities at that stage were far lower than what we will be doing now. But at the same time, it's a substantial amount of investment, especially when it's your own money. So the business is totally self-funded, always has been. And we've no investors, we've no business partners, et cetera. Um, so I kind of started slow and built it up gradually, which is essentially how I'd always want things to be because I'm very much kind of a control freak. So I like to have sight on all areas within the business. Um, but it definitely can be daunting, particularly when you know, you're know you going to a factory to say, hi, can you produce this for me? I've absolutely no benchmarks on what I can sell. I have no clue how this is going to go, but I'm just hoping for the best. And obviously it did work out well. But you know, I always say this and I don't say it lightly. Like I really didn't know all of the areas that was ahead of me in starting a brand, I mean, I was very confident in the type of product I wanted, how I wanted to look, but outside of that, it was very much on the job learning, which is absolutely invaluable when you're having your own business because you'll make a hundred and one million mistakes and then you'll learn everything from them and you'll never make them again
0: and in terms of what when you looked at the market, everyone's trying to find that gap and see where mm. is there something not being served when you looked around and you you obviously knew the whole area yourself personally, but what What did you see there? or what 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 did you see? Was there a particular customer not being served, or what, what was the 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 area of where the others had left it left it open for you?
1: So, I think for me, it was always about um making makeup easier. so actually simplifying the process. So you know four or five years ago, when I was starting sculpted, makeup was obviously heavily divergent in terms of online in terms of education, YouTube tutorials but I did find it was kind of made to be over complex. So, you know, someone will come into me on counter and say, hi, I'm looking for this powder. And I'd be like, sure, there's 27 options here. What one would you like? So I really wanted to create kind of multifunctioning products that I believed would make it easier for the customer and really strip it back and simplify it. And that today, to date is still our ethos within most of our Products and kind of how we educate online and how we try to empower customers to actually be able to use them properly. So it was more obviously leading with innovation in terms of products and formulas, but actually trying to get into the customer in terms of making it easier um, because it can be made out to be a super complex process, which doesn't necessarily need to be.
0: Now, I was going to ask you about the different uh, platforms. Obviously, there's the in store retail piece, and we'll talk about that because it's great to see this week. And when we're recording uh, all these stores reopening for non-essential retail and not just by appointment, but just general entry, obviously, you have the social media platforms. You know, you've mentioned YouTube. There's obviously Instagram. There's TikTok. There's you name it. The platforms are endless. I mean, how do you decide where you're going to be? I mean, obviously, you're everywhere because I know you do um, in-store retail, but you also do online. But how do you know where to kind of um, farm out your resources or in any working day which is the distribution channel we're going to pay attention to? Is that just by instinct or is it more strategic?
1: I always wanted to have an omni-channel approach. So I knew from the very beginning that I would sell online direct to consumer and then also from a distribution point of view into stores. Um, so my approach at the very beginning was to target kind of five of the main chains of Irish pharmacies and then hope that the others would follow if I actually landed the product into those. And that's essentially how the business model grew we since now have a distributor because obviously the volume of stores that we have is quite large. So, you know, you you always get told to to do focus on the areas that you're good at and don't waste your time on things that you can hire other people for. So um, we have our distributor who's brilliant to kind of facilitate those stores. But I think there's a massive benefit in having that omni-channel approach. I think, you know, being digital and being online is amazing because it allows us a lot more scope in terms of you know, creating events for customers. It's been absolutely invaluable for the last year when retail was was really tight and, and doors were, were closed for a lot and footfall was down. But I do think now, like you said, you know, today is a great day when, when retail is opening back up. You also can't beat that face-to-face customer experience. And it will be really sad. And I think, again, given my heritage of working on counters to not have that at all. So I personally really like the mix and it definitely makes it busy but it's all manageable. So now we've built the team out to a stage where we have some directly across e-commerce and then, like I said, the distributor directly across stores. So it all works in harmony.
0: Now, I was looking at your, your Instagram. You're up to, if I'm correct, 120,000 followers, right?
1: Yeah, that's my own personal one. And then Sculpted would have its own page.
0: So I'm, I'm a little bit behind you on the on the metrics there. <laughs> but uh, how important is Instagram in particular in the industry you're in? Just just give um, our listeners an idea of where, where it kind of fits in.
1: Hugely. Instagram for us, I would say, is by far the most important asset that we have from a sales point of view. And when I say sales point of view, I really don't mean that you know, we only use it to create sales. It is such an amazing way to connect with your customer. Like you get feedback straight away instead of having to wait, you know, a few weeks and someone gets it and tries it. And then, you know, we used to write you a letter, or whatever used to happen years ago. So it's brilliant to get customer interaction, customer feedback, to get some ideas. And also that's the, the quickest way that we would educate our customers as well. So like I mentioned at the start, education for me is so important. It always has been. So we can do you know, quick tutorials, visual assets and um, storyboards to help people learn how to use them. It's just I couldn't rate it highly enough, even though it definitely gets a bad name at times um, with trolling, etc. I think once you manage it and use it well, it's an absolutely invaluable source.
0: And then in terms of the influencers or who are in the, the, the beauty scene, how do you liaise with them or how do you kind of interact with them?
1: So it's a funny situation because I suppose given that I'm online myself, Um, and Ireland's obviously quite a close-knit country, I would kind of know a lot of them quite well. I would say that we have an amazing supportive cohort of influencers slash makeup artists online who really just want the best for Irish brands and, and couldn't be any more supportive to us. Now, obviously in saying that, the products stand up to themselves, which is why people use them and you know your product always has to perform first and foremost more than anything, but it's kind of a, a funny situation in that I'm, I'm friends with a lot of them, and then I almost feel like I'm friends with the others because you're chatting online so frequently. So it's a lovely community feeling.
0: And I was amazed to look and doing some of the research here. I almost felt I was I was researching a chemist because <laughs> nobody actually talks about makeup. Everyone talks about formulations and so on. It sounds like um, you'd have got all these sort of potions and and different things going into them. I mean how much do you need to know about that side of things like obviously lots of people know about what the final product does on someone's face but what what, how much of the kind of uh, the chemistry if I can use that word behind it does somebody like yourself need to know to to make it happen
1: I think that's really a personal choice for me I would pride our skin-based formulas on being packed with like skin loving benefits and or skincare ingredients essentially so I would definitely take it upon myself to be educating myself all the time, particularly in these times over the last year when we can't travel. So we would produce majority of our production in South Korea because they just have such an access to skincare and they're just phenomenal in terms of their progression and growth on other countries. So, you know, in in normal times, I'd like to go over there and sit in the lab and kind of experience it all and understand, you know, what ingredients work well together and what don't. So. In absence of that, I'm trying to keep on top of new ingredients forthcoming and then also just educating myself with our manufacturer. But I think it kind of depends. Like you could you could have a manufacturer who's who's very trustworthy and reliable, and maybe you don't feel the need to know much about it. And um, whereas personally, I would hate to not fully understand everything that goes in and why um, and why it works and why it doesn't, particularly because customers are getting far more aware nowadays too with the kind of wealth of of information online in terms of what ingredients look out for and what to avoid so it's just nice to feel really empowered about your own products i think
0: and, and how important is price then amy i mean it, I, I understand it's a, a reasonably high margin business but I, I could be wrong about that can you give us an, an idea of just how sensitive it is to price
1: yeah, like I would say that we sit in the kind of mastige area. So we would consider it to be premium product, but with an accessible price point. So you're not talking at like mass brands, which it's the kind of the lower level price point, and you're not going as high as premium. So we kind of sit somewhere in the middle, which actually is something that I always wanted because it's how I would imagine the, the products to sit. But price is a funny one. it's It's so important. And I've often had really late nights sitting awake, worrying about the fact of a euro, in the price difference, which to anyone listening might be like a Euro, sure, that's nothing. But actually it plays such a huge part in terms of the overall perception of the product, particularly when it's on shelf. So we would look at a few things and we're price deciding both on the actual, obviously cost of the product. And you know, when you put those ingredients in your products, it's definitely not cheap, but also doing competitor analysis. So we have that positioning sussed out. So we need to be mindful that we're looking after the price point versus those competitors and when we're deciding on the overall and then looking at the mill and the component and the component is usually the component is like the bottle or the tube or whatever that the product actually comes in and that can often have to dictate your quantity and your price because they can be really expensive and have quite a high minimum order quantity depending on what you go for if you try to make a bespoke to your own brand so there's a few variables involved
0: now my ears pricked up a little bit when you said south korea for for manufacture mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about that that's that's a long way away um and certainly is when you've got supply chains being disrupted all over the place by brexit and covid and so on so just talk to me about how you get your product from wherever you get it from onto the shelves and say somewhere like boots just just talk me through a little bit of what that journey kind of looks like and, and remember we are time defined here on this podcast so fine. <laughs> <now. laughs>
1: yeah I'd say this is probably the worst time to be asking me that question because I am so stressed about freight. It's just an absolute nightmare behind the scenes and as anyone I'm sure can imagine you know you've got Covid, you've got the Suez Canal um, disruption recently and then you've got Brexit thrown in the mix so it honestly is like trying to navigate a continuous obstacle course but generally you've got two ways of transport. You can go by sea, you can split the air into air and road but to be honest, prices are just astronomical, and there's like zero space at the moment. So it's definitely causing a lot of unnecessary stresses. But hopefully, after this year, we might we might be through the the worst of it. But that definitely adds a lot of time onto your general uh, critical path for products. So you know you'd have to allow about forty five days by sea coming from Korea, and um, so it definitely just adds that little bit of extra, I suppose, complications with things. But then the product is worth it, and you know, a lot of people would trust our skin formulas knowing that they're South Korean based as well, just because they do have such a great name in terms of their skincare elements. So yeah, it's a journey in itself.
0: Would there be any possibility of a, a, a closer supply chain coming from a European source or is it, are they just not doing the kind of things you're, you're, you're talking about?
1: I've definitely not ruled it out. You know, we deal with Europe on other products. I just feel like I'm, I'm so invested in both the factory and our products over there that I would find it a massive I suppose ordeal for us to to transfer, it. and I'm, I'm I would never say never, um, but at the moment I find Europe are better focusing on the products of ours that they are doing versus taking on those formulas that that we have sourced with South Korea.
0: Like forty five days, it's 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 a lot of time, isn't it? So you're it is, yeah. you know get that wrong and you can be in trouble on either side. You can either have an undershoot or, or oversupply, etc. I mean, at least they're they're not perishable. I suppose you you I presume you have some. You have a warehouse of some yeah, kind. We
1: have a warehouse of filament over here. And also generally with cosmetics, your your kind of best before date or whatever you want to call it in terms of if makeup actually happens after you open it. So that is a lucky thing for us as well. We're not dealing with food, thankfully. So
0: and Brexit has, has has exacerbated this whole thing, I presume.
1: Yeah. So obviously we're in boots and when you are stocked in boots, you send your product to Nottingham, regardless if it's going to ROI or the UK. So that definitely, I think, caught us out more than we expected it to, to be honest, for the first three or four months of the year. Slowly getting into more of a routine now as the backlog and customs, et cetera, subsides. But yeah, it was a funny one to throw into the mix with COVID so strong.
0: So you have product go to Nottingham and then back Mm. to Dublin. Yeah. Yeah, that does seem peculiar.
1: That's the thing. And they're such an established company that it's very hard for them to flex you know, very quickly to, to kind of go with current time. So who knows in the future, but that's that's generally how, how booths are set up for now.
0: Now I notice in, in terms of how you're your, your marketing of your various products, are you up to about 41 number of total products?
1: So I suppose when you take into account the variance of the products, we're probably over about 65. Wow. But in terms of actual categories, yeah you'd be closer to, to that figure.
0: And I, know, I noticed one of the things that you, you strongly emphasize is the ethical and cruelty-free nature of the products. Um, animal testing has been a huge issue in, in this industry for decades now, really. C- can you talk to me a little bit about how important that is to your company and how important it is to the customers that, that, that you deal with?
1: Um, I definitely think cruelty-free is something that resonates with every customer that we deal with. And to be honest, I am not surprised at all by it because when I was starting um, to research the brand and to develop, like for me, to be totally honest, it wasn't even a question of whether animal testing would be involved or not. Like me and I just was so to the point of like, well, clearly that's not going to happen. It's kind of like drink driving for our generation. It was just not even a consideration because the rules were always involved. If that makes sense. So for me, it's always been a uh, a given, I suppose, with the products and. I think it's lovely that it's such an importance to customers as well, because it shows that they're very fond of ethical formulas and sourcing within, within who they shop with. And I also think from a global scale, there's massive change happening with that area. And I think there's a lot of positive news coming in terms of companies changing their supply chain to, to make sure it's not tested on animals or else countries changing their laws. So it's definitely on the up in terms of positivity anyway.
0: And it's something that the customers are driving as well, I presume, even if if even if even you as the company never even had thought about this, the customers are leading this, aren't they?
1: Yeah. And you get a lot of um, ideas like that from customers, particularly the younger generation, the Gen Zs, as you'd call them. They're very on board with trends. They're very on top of education and knowledge. And, you know, you would get a lot of inspiration from kind of comments that you'd see them leave or or opinions they might have on things which is great because it's all positive Do you know it's all revolving around sustainability and vegan and an ethical sourcing etc so it's definitely um the right direction.
0: And Amy in terms of we talked a little bit about your omni-channel strategy in terms of retail generally and in the week that's ended, I thought I might ask you about this there's a lot of gloom around the high street some very distressing numbers for Grafton Street in particular that you know very large chunk of the real estate there is empty as vacant there's a lot of people questioning how much more high street retailing can go further down, unfortunately. I mean, what's your own take on, you know, your own customers, you deal with them very personally, you have a good relationship with many of them, you hear from them. I mean, where where do you think we're going in terms of sort of online versus the high street and bricks and mortar? I mean, what's what's your own thoughts on that?
1: I definitely saw a lot of new customers convert to online over the last year. You know, you could tell that they were first time purchasers from an online perspective, um, which was great, firstly, obviously, to enable them to buy goods they needed when stores were closed. But at the same time, I really don't see the actual high street in full being canceled. I think people really crave that in-store experience, You know, particularly from a cosmetics point of view. They want to test the products, they want to see them, they want to get their shade right. They love that one-to-one experience with, with the right staff members. So I don't see its place being canceled fully whatsoever naturally, I think it'll take a hit. And I think that landlords will be forced to offer more competitive pricing and probably more flexible contracts for tenants coming in because everyone's quite wary about the future now. And the pandemic has definitely brought a different sense around long-term contracts. So I think if anything, that's a good thing. It'll allow more kind of young up and coming niche trending brands to maybe trial a high street. Whereas before that, it would have only been to the kind of big conglomerates that actually just rule everything. So I think beneath it all there will be some positivity I think it'll take time I think it'll be a while before we fully see the effects of this pandemic because obviously a lot of business have been supported by the government and when that stops you know who knows opposition will be in it could be very different but I definitely think that the high street will have a place to play Regardless of what changes take shape, it just don't know in what full capacity
0: I mean the landlord piece seems to be pivotal doesn 't mm. it that the the rents will have to will be driven down in time, but it 's how much casualties will happen on the way before we get to the I know. supply and demand meets up its it certainly if somewhere like grafffin Street is struggling i don 't even want to think about streets that are in the less prime areas are are, are must be really under pressure but then again the rents are lower in those areas so so who knows yeah in terms of covid overall i mean how has it gone for your business i'm seeing and thinking of a lot of people sitting at home they're not going out they're not getting dressed up you know they're watching a lot of netflix (laughs) etc etc i mean how did that last six month period of the, the really severe level five restrictions i mean how did that impact your customers
1: I suppose in one way to look at it is a lot of our products are about kind of nurturing the skin, enhancing, you know, a natural look and not going OTT. So actually, if anything, our products were very fitting to the time of the world that we were in. Um, And we definitely saw a spike in sales in terms of our, you know, face tan, our setting spray, our illuminating primer, our good foundations for the skin. So those kind of products that people enjoyed putting on that felt a little bit more like themselves, but they didn't feel OTT sitting in front of Zoom for the day. I think also it forced us to kind of look at our offering online and we got a lot more experimental in terms of, you know, running events and we moved to our academy to kind of teach people online. And we kind of explored a whole new area of digital that I don't think we would have had we not been forced to. So, you know, the first two weeks of the pandemic, I freaked. I didn't know what was ahead of us. I was very concerned even in terms of having a team, you know, how do you lead them and direct them when you don't know what's going on yourself, but actually, you know, not to say that it's been a very positive year because obviously, first and foremost, people have lost lives and that's awful. But in terms of how, I suppose, awful it could have been for us as a business, we were very fortunate because we were able to adapt so quickly to what was going on and change, I suppose, our offering to customers and how we did it. And ultimately, it's actually presented a whole new area of opportunity for us that I don't think will ever not avail of now, even with bricks and mortars coming back.
0: Now, you're only a few years, I suppose, compared to the uh, from the BCom program. It's gone exceptionally well. I did mention in my introduction a really big milestone of getting into the EY Entrepreneur of the Year competition. Now, this is the part of the, the tape and the files, <laughs> which you you know, sometimes people get a bit nervous about playing them back years later. But i am got to ask you about the ambitions for the business. Obviously, the EY award is is a big milestone. But where, where do you want to go with this business? Can you give us some idea and our listeners some idea of, of where you are now, the size of the business and where you kind of see a, a route to greater success or is it a ca- case of sort of just consolidating for the period ahead what, what's your hopes dreams and ambitions
1: i would definitely have a global ambition for sculpted and you know i'm sure you probably heard that a lot from businesses people might roll their eyes and say oh bless her you know i hope i hope she gets it but genuinely i i absolutely believe that we can be global and um, but i'm fully aware of the challenges and resources and financial impacts that that's going to have to get there and um, but longer term goals that's definitely first and foremost right now we're stocked in Ireland and online in the UK. We are expanding further within the UK and that our next markets in our line of sight would be the Middle East and the UAE further across Europe and then eventually into the US but that's the, the final piece on the map because there's a lot involved to get ready for the US in terms of formulas and regulations. In terms of where the business is now, the business had one full-time team member in 2019 and we now have 15 so it's grown hugely, I suppose, in the last kind of year, year and a half, two years, um, which is amazing for me because I really feel like we're at a place of growth now and I can feel the tempo changing and naturally it brings its own issues. But for me, yeah, I definitely won't rest until until we get that global status and, and widely known and recognized both for, for what we do and how we do it. It's really important to me. So I think, you know, like a lot of businesses out there, um, some people feel that maybe the the founders aren't as involved as as others, whereas actually I'm completely invested in every area. So I need to wise up, I suppose, in the areas that I focus on. But at the same time, I absolutely love it. So, yeah, we have lots to do and lots ahead of us.
0: And who, who are your competitors, Amy? Like, who are you watching when you wake up in the morning and you, you click onto your own social media accounts? Like, who, who are the companies you're watching to say, oh, look what they're doing or who who is who's the... The company or personality it might be, but that sort of you you kind of follow to see the test the temperature in the in the sector.
1: I think there's a lot of businesses that I would look up to in terms of the growth they've had and the kind of mark they've left um on the industry. So global brands such as Charlotte Tilbury, Nars, and Glossier would be three that, you know, not only do I think are great brands to aspire to, but also ones that we'd often be pitched against in terms of our formatives or our look and feel. Um, which is obviously a massive compliment, even though we stand on our own for our own reasons and, and vice versa with them. But um, Charlotte Tilbury, I suppose, is a brand that's been built by a makeup artist. So I would identify a lot with that. And um, They obviously have global success now. Um, NARS is a very artistry-led brand. Wormulas are brilliant. Our skin products that often be pitched against them. And then Glossier is a digital-only brand that has a very inclusive feel. So there's kind of different elements among the three that I would definitely look up to. And naturally, you know, they sit as competitors, but we wouldn't be on that global scale, yet. so I don't think they're too worried about us oh,
0: no, but you you might acquire nuisance value to them they <laughs> yeah. and they might might they might get the checkbook out then at that stage to say, uh, can we, how do we make this woman go away you know so uh <laughs> keep annoying them if you're doing nothing else uh, i I suppose that's the the way to do it. you know listen, it's been a fascinating conversation. Good luck over the next few weeks, uh, obviously, it's great to see retail reopening um it's been you know tough grinding few months for all of them and um, both from an employment point of view stocking point of view which you've mentioned it's great to see that you're despite brexit and everything else you're, you're getting the product onto the shelves and into your warehouse so congratulations good luck on the awards and thanks for coming on today's podcast
1: no problem thank you so much for having me